Welcome to Midas Touch Podcast Legal AF. Ben Micellis joined by Michael Popak, the Popokian. If it's Saturday, it is legal AF live. If it's Sunday, it is legal AF. Basically, if it is the weekend, you're listening to Michael Popak and Ben Micellis. Thank you, Michael Popak, for joining me this weekend. As always, how you doing? I didn't know I had a choice. I thought I had to be here. <laughs> okay, so last week you shocked me with a prop. So I'm gonna, I'm thinking about using a pipe as I sit and listen to you ponder about the law. What do you think about that? I, you know, I'm not sure the pipe is a good look. What kind of pipe do you have there, though, Pope? Well, that's that's actually my late father's pipe. That's one of his Mershon pipes. He'd be so proud. First of all, he'd be so proud of us doing this because he was a big, big loving supporter of me when he was. When he was here, we're coming up on the anniversary of his passing. So I thought about him today and I said, maybe I'll just sit here when I'm doing pondering. Like with the law, Popak, you got to give me the full set of facts before asking me what I think about your pipe. I didn't realize oh, the pipe okay. had such had such significant <laughs> background. I thought you were just losing your mind and uh, <laughs> no. like Popeye the Sailor Man. So <laughs> knowing the meaning and the deeper understanding, I appreciate you having the pipe. I thank you, Popak, for joining us this weekend. And I want to say hashtag thank you, Brandon. That's right. If you file followed the Midas touch uh, Twitter account you'll know that Midas touch trended hashtag thank you Brandon the GQ peers tried to basically take this statement where people were screaming uh, a, a small group of people at a NASCAR event were saying fuck Joe Biden and then uh, the reporter thought they were saying let's go Brandon so she all was the covering she was covering there. for the crowd so the GQ peers out there essentially then were censoring themselves by saying, let's go, Brandon, as code for fuck Joe Biden. And look, no matter what, I think that we should all have somewhat of a, a sense of humor about it. I mean, let's go, Brandon is kind of funny. I mean, it's immature and stupid that a political party is doing it, but let's not let them co-opt these terms. And so Take we said, back. thank you, Brandon, because at the end of the day, the U.S. added back 531,000 jobs in October, beating all expectations. The Dow is over 36,000. All the stocks seem to rise now, except Trump's digital world acquisition <laughs> company, which is we predict on legal AF. It's coming crashing down. More than 80% of jobs lost during the pandemic have been recovered. Over 220 million Americans are vaccinated. Now children can get vaccinated. And we passed an infrastructure uh, uh, bill last night. And so things are moving. But this Popak is not Midas Touch podcast. It is legal <laughs> AF. But I just wanted to say thank you, Brandon. And did you see our shirts, Popak? I love the shirts. And I actually, I gave you, they didn't make the cut, but I gave you guys some other suggestions to go along with it. If you want to fill out the Brandon wear, I posted on Twitter this today, building back Brandon as part of the $1.3 trillion package, riding, riding with Brandon could also be a t-shirt. I'm, I'm fully into Brandon. They can, they can do whatever they want. Brandon won. Whatever, whatever they want to say, the fact that a sitting U.S. senator, Ted Cruz, thinks it's appropriate to go tell the president to go fuck himself. You know, it just shows you how puerile and immature that party is. And but I think it's it's fun to watch you guys hoist them on their own petard and and self self fund T-shirts and reclaim what is Brandon. 
So go to the Midas Touch merch store. Just go to MidasTouch.com. You'll be able to find the merch store if you want to get your thank you brand and shirt. And as you talk about the GQP being so puerile, so immature when it comes to how they are politically, it's really a common trend that we see here on Legal AF in how they go about treating the law. Truthfully, we've talked about difficult legal decisions. We've talked about how there's this encroachment of fascism into our constitutional norms. But the one thing that's held has still been the court system, the Constitution. That's what's kept this country going, and we need to fight for it every day. But those puerile and immature arguments have not yet, and I say not yet, uh, because it could happen, been able to pierce through kind of this final veil, which is into our kind of constitution, um, which hasn't happened yet. But let's get into the law Popak. And let's start off by just talking about a quick update, another uh, Popakian prediction come true. We talked about the Cuomo uh, criminal complaint filed by the sheriff up in Albany. We talked in the past podcast about how there was a number of procedural oddities with this, and it seemed to be politically motivated by the sheriff. I mean, look, you had prosecutors who were actually pursuing an investigation. I think we all think there needs to be a legitimate investigation taking place. But the fact that nobody knew about this filing as the filing was was the filing happened, everybody was surprised that this happened. The prosecutors were surprised. We predicted Popak on the last podcast that this prosecutor is not going to be happy. And there's an update here you want to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost uncanny what you and I were able to predict. We said it's a bad day when the prosecutor doesn't know that the sheriff has filed a legal document in the courthouse to try to get somebody arrested and arraigned. And, it, and it's a surprise to the to the victim, the person who's reported the incident. And so that went from from bad to really bad to worse, because now David Soares, who's the Albany County District Attorney, has come out in a late night press conference uh, yesterday and basically said that the document that was filed by the sheriff was improper, probably procedurally defective because it missed two major components. One, it didn't have a sworn affidavit under penalty of perjury by the alleged victim, in this case, Brittany Camiso. It paraphrased testimony that she had given to the attorney general, Tish James, during her investigation, but didn't include an affidavit. And New York requires that what we call recipient witnesses with knowledge actually swear out affidavits. So that's missing. And then, you know, the DA also said the sheriff misstated the law in his filing. This is why sheriffs should arrest people and do investigations, but they shouldn't do court filings unless lawyers are present. And so, and and it's to the advantage of the defense. It's to the advantage of Cuomo, which is what you and I said. I think you, you made the point, Ben, last podcast, which is if they have a legitimate case, why crap all over it? you know, let let this be played out properly in the courthouse. So now what the DA has done is he's asked the judge to delay the arraignment that was scheduled for the 17th of November, and it may not happen at all. And then also the DA announced, I'm doing my own investigation of Cuomo. 
So, and you, and you stepped on that, Mr. Sheriff. So this is, we'll have to watch this closely. The short answer is Cuomo is not going to get arraigned on the 17th. He's not going to get arrested and he's not going to be processed for a misdemeanor forcible touching. And it's going to be up now to, I think what it should have been the DA to file his own criminal complaint if he feels he has the evidence. Now, Cuomo also has a great argument of malicious prosecution, of prosecutorial misconduct. He can cite to the irregularities in the filing process as a way to get off um, from these charges. And basically, if it was a politically motivated thing, the sheriff just really handed Cuomo a, a real legal win here. That's what we talked about on the last podcast, that a lot of lawyers, a lot of people who live in these political echo chambers, they love that headline. Oh, does it feel good to get that great headline that a lawsuit's been filed, you know, on that first day where you roll it out. But you better be ready to litigate that case and be able to strategize because a case lasts for more than one day. A case la a case has a life cycle of many, many years. That's what you and I would call in the business an unforced error, like in tennis. I mean, the sheriff just hit into the net for absolutely no reason to get some sort of one news cycle advantage. But, you know, lawsuit, as our followers and listeners know well, Lawsuits are not one news cycle. From unforced errors to forced stupidity from the GQP, we go to January 6th sentencing. This is just an absurd and ridiculous headline, though, from Huffington Post by referring yeah. to this Jenna Ryan, who was sentenced as a January 6th influencer. Now, I don't know if this is, does she refer to herself as a January 6th influencer, which is just the most absurd con concept and tells you what trash the GQP is that you could be an influencer for taking selfies of yourself on January 6th. But you'll recall Jenna Ryan is the Trump loving real estate broker following January 6th. She called it one of the best days of her life. She posted all of these photos of herself next to the Capitol building with windows that were uh, smashed through. She's wearing, uh, you know, she's wearing red, white and blue Trump uh, kind wait, of wait, and she was it. using it. She was using it to sell real estate. Look what I'm doing today in the Capitol. Guess what I could do for you to sell your house? I mean, that's actually what she did. She said that she was also, quote, going to war was was language that she used as she was taping herself. Prosecutors said that Ryan has been promoting her personal brand while doing this. And then following the event, she went to her followers and basically said words to the effect of because she was a white woman, white woman who had money that she didn't even fear at all that she was going to have to do any jail time whatsoever. So the Justice Department filed the sentencing memo um, <laughs> that recommended that she go to jail specifically because of the statements that she made and that uh, having her not serve any jail time would be problematic and needing to having making sure she serves jail times would have a deterrent effect. What do you think here? Yeah, about? she, well, my favorite uh, quote of hers that she tweeted is that she had blonde hair and white skin and a, and a great career and she was never going to jail. That's, that's the part you paraphrased. And uh, she had already pled guilty. So she just, so everybody is following here, 600 people were indicted 
and arrested related to the Gen 6 insurrection. And we're getting through sort of the first layer of people that pled guilty. Uh, some trials have been scheduled. She's one of the people that pled guilty. So one of the justices in the D.C., um, the D.C. Um, branch of the federal court, Judge Cooper, had a sentencer. So you have in sentencing, I think we've talked about this a little bit in the past, you have the prosecutors making a recommendation, you, usually with, re, with reference to the federal sentencing guidelines and a probation report that's prepared um, that weighs the conduct against the sentencing guidelines and comes up with a recommended sentence. And then the feds can either depart from that, they can go higher, they can go lower, depending upon aggravating circumstances or otherwise, or cooperation credit, that type of thing. And then they stand in the, in the courthouse on sentencing day and they say to the judge, this person should get six months. And then, of course, the defense takes the same factors and analysis and argues for home confinement or they, they should wear a bracelet and they should go free today. And then it's up to the judge um, to actually do the sentencing. So here, um, the federal prosecutors asked for 60 days in prison, $500 restitution. I think that's for the broken window that she was involved with and a thousand dollar fine. And that's what the judge went with. Um, I think the other side was arguing that she should be let go and be given a slap on the wrist. So um, she's going to jail. She had a comment after she got sentenced, which is my haters can pop champagne now. I'm going to jail. She'll probably find a way to make money off of this. And to that extent, Popak, let me tell you what a trash person this Jenna Ryan is. Um, on November 4th, she tweeted out, I'm just going to make a blanket statement to all the people that are calling me and texting me. You win. I'm going to prison, so you don't need to contact me anymore. Pop champagne and then rejoice, but just leave me alone. Thank you. Then she tweets shortly thereafter, I'm not going to prison for the things that I said or standing in front of the broken window. It's for walking in the Capitol for two minutes. And what the judge says is to serve a deterrence to others, since I have a high profile, which I got after the fact, thanks to the mainstream media's smear campaign. She tweets the next day on November 5th. Please note. Payment getaways such as Stripe and PayPal have shut me down, so I am unable to fundraise to cover my legal expenses. I will be seeking alternatives for fundraising. That's to your point, Popak, as you smoke the pipe, uh, Popak, pipe smoking Popak, um, about her grifting off of this situation. And then uh, a few hours later, she tweets, I will be on Newsmax tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern hour. Tune in. And then she basically has no level of accountability whatsoever. 60 days for her is absurd. She should go to jail for at least five years. Let's flip the script for a second, Popak. Could you imagine if there was a rally to support refugees outside of the Capitol building? Okay. And then during this rally to support refugees in solidarity with refugees, a group of Hispanic men and women or black men and women said, you know what, we've had enough of this government oppression and the way you're persecuting refugees. 
We are going to storm in the Capitol and we want the lawmakers to hear from us. So they push through, they smash and they hit all of the Capitol police officers. They kill a Capitol police officer. They injure four. They smash through. We're talking about a group of Hispanic men and women, black men and women. They run into the Senate chambers. They throw the paper everywhere and they say, we're not leaving until we get justice. Popak. Would it be an understatement to say every single one of them would get life in prison? Every single one of them would get life in prison. Full okay. stop. I'll give you two observations. One, if the Trump administration and its attorney general was in charge, the answer to that question is, is yes. However, if what you just described happened, if it were black men and women and brown men and women storming the Capitol, Trump would have made sure, and you pointed this out before, Trump would have made sure that the National Guard was present at that moment, and we would have had people shot and killed, like Kent State and other and other times in our dark times in our history. There would have been water cannons used. There would have been firepower used. We would have had mass death on the steps of the Capitol, except it was white, blonde, privileged people flying with private jets and others. Right. And here she's flying in in a private jet. She's projecting this influencer lifestyle. And now she's out there basically begging for money to support her legal expenses. Are you kidding me? You're right, Popak. If it was the Trump administration that was in power when the example I just gave, you're right. They would have killed all of the protesters. If it was a Democratic administration, it would have been life. It would have been life in prison. But that's what would have happened. And so to see 60 days, you know, while I'm glad she's going to prison, you just look at her tweets. She's mocking the legal system well, let, in those tweets. Well, let me let me let me outline one more sentencing this week. And then I want to ask you what what you think is going on with the Garland um, set of prosecutors here. So Matthew Mazzocco was sentenced this week as well. The federal prosecutors asked for home confinement. Because I think you and I talked about this two or three podcasts ago. You know, you get to go um, participate in an insurrection against your government, enter the Capitol, and you and you get sent home with a T-shirt, a participation T-shirt. And that can't be the messaging. You and I both said the day that that happened and the next day when we did the podcast that they should be sent to the equivalent of Leavenworth Penitentiary, every one of them, to be breaking big rocks into little rocks for the rest of their natural born life. This pro this set of prosecutors aren't doing that, much to the chagrin of some of the judges. So Tanya Chutkin, I call her hang em high Chutkin with praise, who we're gonna talk about during a, a later segment tonight on the Jan 6th and the executive privilege application, happened to be a judge this week for Matthew Mazzocco. Prosecutors ask for home confinement the judge takes one look and says, you are not going to participate in an insurrection and the violent overthrow of the government and go home and sit at home and serve your sentence. She threw the book at him in her way. She gave him 45 days in prison. Now, he's interesting because he did not commit any damage to property, nor did he participate in any violent attack on a human being. He just he went into the Capitol, was there for a short amount of time, took a lot of photos like he was on a uh, some sort of tourist binge 
and then left. But Chutkin sent him to jail for 45 days. And, and the other judge, Cooper, sent um, Jenna or Jen, whatever her name is, for 40 for 60 days. So what do you think is happening here with this level of participant and the sentencing that they're being given? I don't think they have enough resources. And I think they are trying to focus. They have a lot to focus on. Trump left them with a ton of yeah. massive crimes um, that they are looking into, you know, and at the highest levels to have a former presidential administration engage in a coup to encourage an insurrection is something that we've never seen before in our country. So I think, you know, tasked with these issues of over resources over what are we going to do with someone like this influencer lady who's out there, you know, you know, you know, sprouting her mouth on Twitter or this random loan officer from Texas. Like we don't have enough time to even deal with them. Our prosecutors are focused on all these other issues. I think that's what's going on. Yeah. But I think it's very problematic. I think you have to, as a prosecutor in this situation, call the bluff of the Jenna Ryans of the world. No one is forcing you to settle with these people. And to me, it's not ultimately like putting on these trials is going to be all that difficult. Have a low level first year prosecutor do this case and do the trial. It'll probably take two or three days and ask the jury and ask in sentencing for five to 10 years. Someone like a Jenna Ryan should be doing at least five years because that is how you send a message to future Jenna Ryans. Well, and that insurrection. Yeah, sure. You talk about the loan officer you talked about from Texas. Maybe he walked in and he didn't actually cause damage, but he gets away with it. All these future fucking idiots and fascists look at this and go, you know what? Maybe next time I could push it this further. I could yeah. push it this further. It's like the kid who just goes one step further and further and further while they don't get punished. And before you know it, they've basically stolen mom and dad's car and driven it out to uh, whatever. But that is the issue. What well, do you think? Well, on? yeah, well, I agree with you. Let me give you a, an example. I think that the resources that the federal government has devoted to prosecuting the parents that bribed their children's way into um, universities and colleges under the uh, the uh, Varsity Blues investigation, which led to Felicity Huffman serving time in jail and uh, William H. Macy, so her true. husband. So the, true. The resources that were devoted to that, that are still being devoted to that, to put on trials in Boston, to send the message that rich entitled parents can't bribe their kids way through universities. Why isn't that same approach being used to people that stormed the Capitol in a violent insurrection? That's so true, Popak. It's absurd. It is absurd. And that is the perfect juxtaposition where it seemed the full force and power of the United States government thrown at, at this group of parents, by the way, fucked up. Right. The parents, you know, but, but Bambi not, not totally a cool, not, but not Bambi cool. going to Harvard is, a, I mean, I don't think we should put it on the same scale, not even close to the same Jenna scale. Ryan <laughs> storming the Capitol. It shouldn't even be on a scale compared to insurrection. But yeah, where are those resources? Where are those prosecutors? Hire more prosecutors. Right. Go to the top law schools and, and let's get a a a fucking army of prosecutors yeah. who say we're for the democracy and let's tell big law firms, hey, 
Let's have your associates do something for our democracy and prosecute these motherfuckers. That's a very good observation. Deputizing private lawyers and law firms to assist with prosecution is not unheard of. When I was a second year in in um, in a big firm in New York to get experience, I handled by myself because it was years before I'd be able to go to a courthouse with with a paying client. But on a pro bono basis, they had a program where I signed up and I, I was deputized for a case on the prosecutor's side for an appeal. And there's now a case, you can look it up, People versus Lucas. It's about bolstering testimony when police testify. But I was writing the appeal on behalf of the state, on behalf of the prosecutors. And so you can do that. You can go get some Ivy League kids who are never going to see the inside of a courtroom for the next 10 years and make them deputized as assistant U.S. attorneys to go prosecute these cases. You're right. I haven't seen the analysis about a resource deficiency here, but your 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 observation makes perfect sense. Popak, your people be Lucas. <laughs> Listen, it's you? still good law in the books of New York. <laughs> people be Lucas is people Popak. Be Lucas. You can look I, it nev- up. I never I never knew that you'd learn something new about yeah. Popak every day. <laughs> and we learned something new on legal AF every day. And so my friend Jeremy Stahl wrote this great article for Slate about how in the absence of uh, real kind of accountability coming from prosecutorial bodies and the slow pace at which the January 6th commission is going. And although it's moving quicker, we'll talk about some updates in January 6th and Trump's claim for executive privilege, but private defamation cases as a means to accountability. And in this Jeremy Stahl article for Slate, he cites how in a Colorado case, you already have depositions being taken of Rudy Giuliani, of Powell and others. I've seen those depositions. What a fucking clown Giuliani is. Giuliani made it worse. He made it. He libeled them again in the he basically proved the libel case in his deposition testimony. We'll talk about it next. They they asked Giuliani a question about like he goes, I don't have to. Why would I have to do my research? And uh, he goes, I was given the report. I had to act quickly. And so I just said it. Wait, 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 wait. That's all true. Here's what he said in his deposition under oath in that in that. Smartmatic was it Smartmatic or was it um, Dominion? Smartmatic, right? Yeah, the smart the Smartmatic thing just baffles my mind though, Popak, because Smartmatic only operated an elections operation in Los Angeles County and did, <laughs> didn't even do Smartmatic. Right. It, it, it's like with these GQPers, and I want you to say what happened in the in the yeah. deposition in a second. But they latch on what they're actually good at is like a word like Dominion and Smartmatic, it has this like flat earth uh, CRT, like it's a phrase (laughs) that just fucking hypnotizes their fucking morons who go, oh, Smartmatic was about, but Smartmatic only did a a small amount of voting facilities in LA County. They weren't even in it. But anyways, what happened with Giuliani? so, So Giuliani testifies under oath in the deposition. And this is what he said. He said 12 to 13, wasn't sure how many executives from Dominion and Smartmatic went to Venezuela to meet with President Maduro in order to demonstrate for Maduro how with when Chavez was the president, they were able to vote alter and change the election. 
And, and this was the basis, which is totally untrue, which is totally defamatory, which never happened. And so this rises the level of not just defamatory uh, information. This is actual malice because you knew or should have known at the time that you made that statement and now in the deposition making the statement that it had no support in the truth, which is defamation per se, and will get them hundreds of millions of dollars of an award. Ultimately, who's going to pay it? Who knows? But they're going to they're going to win. And what I like about the strategy here that is outlined in Slate, but that has been obvious to you and I for the last 20 episodes, is that they're not just putting all their eggs, the plaintiffs aren't putting all their eggs in one basket either. Smartmatic filed their original lawsuit, we talked about it a long time ago, in February of this this year, February of 2021, against, in, in, the, in the New York one, against Fox News and Giuliani and DiBartirolo and, and Piero and all the Lou Dobbs and all of that. That's still pending in New York State Supreme Trial Court level um, since, uh, since uh, February of 2021. Now they file in the federal court in the District of Columbia, a, basically the same suit, but now against a whole new group of right-wing, uh, right-wing entities, including Newsmax and 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 uh, and the other ones. So I love the fact that they're making these defendants, Giuliani and Powell and Trump, and Fox and OANN, defend themselves not just in one court with one judge, but in multiple courts in state and federal courts all around the country at the same time, which is great because a it's usually the other way around. Usually, you know, these large uh, corporate types try to bleed the, 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 the plaintiffs dry by making them do battle on multiple courthouse steps and spend a lot of money and resources. But Dominion and Smartmatic have money, so they're doing the same thing. They're filing five and six and seven of these lawsuits that have to be defended all at the same time and simultaneously, which is, I'm sure, fatiguing and draining and will ultimately lead to victory in terms of their strategy. What do you think about that? It's an incredible strategy. It's like the legal version of Kill Bill. It's like Dominion and Smartmatic are out for revenge and they're climbing the ladders of basically, you know, not killing, but legally destroying like the lower level people as they work their way up to Donald Trump ultimately is where it's headed. And Rupert Murdoch is where it's ultimately heading. It shows you the difference before you move on. It shows you the difference because you and I have talked a lot about this between the really poor lawyering and, and the lawyers that are surrounding Trump. And, and all the people involved in Jan 6 and Stop the Steel Rally and all these lawyers that make appearances, you know, Jenna, another Jenna, Jenna Ellis and all these other strange people. And compare that to the legal talent and firepower that are being retained by the legitimate companies and individuals who are suing Trump in the civil court, because that's where uh, we saw it in the OJ trial. That's where justice may happen. It may happen on the civil side, in the civil courts. While the you know U.S. attorney and the Department of Justice sort of get its act together on the criminal side, that's why I wanted to and why I was and am a civil lawyer. Um, I always wanted to go into politics, Popak. That's why I went to Georgetown Law. I interned for politicians. I always thought it's I shocking. Wanted, it's I want a shocking run. revelation by Ben Micellis. But I then went in another direction because I'm like, I don't think I can get. A, 
I want to get stuff done that actually helps people. And I thought the best way to actually help people and make an impact at a young age was being a civil lawyer. And you could see the strengths of being a civil lawyer. Let's talk about um, two of these civil defamation cases that were filed recently, very briefly. Um, Smartmatic in the District Court of Washington, D.C., filed against OAN. Um, let's read you one paragraph from, from this complaint. Smartmatic provided election technology and services to Los Angeles County during the 2020 U.S. election. Its technology and software were used nowhere else in the country, and yet OAN published report after report naming Smartmatic as one of the voting machine companies that had conspired to steal the election by switching votes from former President Trump to current President Biden. In LA. It was, it was all a lie, and OAN knew it. And then it starts off by saying this, the first time it happened, it could be a mistake. The second, third, fourth, and 50th times it happened were intentional choices. OAN had every opportunity to do the right thing after the 2020 election for president and vice president of the United States. It could have reported the truth. Instead, it chose to do wrong every single time. It reported a lie and it talked about the financial motivations the lawsuit does that OAN wanted to juice its ratings uh, in competing with Fox News and other it was like a race to the bottom of who could be more defamatory uh, towards these companies. So that was that case. Well, well, and then- before, you, before you move on, before you move on, and, and the heart of that complaint, again, based on a complaint that Smartmatic is currently prosecuting in the civil civil side in New York State Supreme against Fox and Company, is the, is the just to remind everybody, there was a joint coordinating committee uh, on election infrastructure with six or seven different federal agencies, including cybersecurity and things related to elections, who on a a, a November 12th, 2020 report definitively established that there was no voter fraud at all, systemic or otherwise, that would have changed the election on the voting day that Biden beat Trump. End of story. And that's the heart of every one of these Uh, defamation cases that in the face of that factual analysis and report, these news entities and news media outlets, in order to gin their ratings, lied with actual malice against the smartmatics of the world. And when you climb the ladder, a la uh, Kill Bill, you know, who do you find? You find one person at the end of the day. Donald Trump and the cult of Trump. And maybe somewhere near his side, you see Rupert Murdoch. I think we can have a debate who's pulling whose strings there. But at the end of the day, that's at the top of the ladder. And the other defamation case to touch briefly on is the case filed by James Savage in Philadelphia County Court of Common Pleas Civil Division. That's like their superior court there against Donald Trump, Giuliani, the Trump for president campaign, uh, the Giuliani law firm, Jenna Ellis, uh, Gregory Stenstrom, Leah, Leah Hoops, Thomas More Society, the Thomas More Society. That, that'll be that one will be interesting. I, I have an interesting take on this one. I'll share with yeah. you. Yeah. Um, and it says Savage was in charge of the suburban Philadelphia voting machine warehouse and GOP poll watchers, Gregory Stenstrom and Leah Hoops 
They then defamed him, it's alleged, when they said that he took a USB card and uploaded 50,000 illegal votes for Biden. He's suing them. And that whole bullshit conspiracy, the defamatory conspiracy uh, by Gregory Sandstrom and Leah Hoops, it's argued in the lawsuit was coordinated by Trump, Giuliani and all of these other figures. My only view on this one is Savage has a bit of a different calculus than some of these big like these big companies because Dominion and Smartmatic have a lot of have a lot of money and they can go after a lot of uh, defendants. To me, strategically here, Savage going after all of these entities as an individual who likely doesn't have the same resources. I, I don't know what his arrangement is with the law firm, but then you bring in a Thomas More Society, which is going to you know also defend themselves very vigorously, which is a law firm, which is a law firm and have unlimited resources and suing a law firm has some different implications. The law firm is likely going to claim a bunch of legal advice styles, civil immunities. We won't get into all of those here, but they have some defenses of being a law firm. I think my, my view is that I like the lawsuit. I think he's going to prevail with certain defendants. I think he overstretched here in terms of naming the defendants and it's going to come back to bite him strategically. If you and I had taken this case, it's a case that you and I could have taken. If you and I had taken the case, I would have had a much narrower field, as you just outlined, of defendants to target probably two or three of them. Trump, Giuliani and the two people who defamed. Right. I don't need the rest and I don't need to battle with a law firm over the ethics of suing a law firm. His case is interesting because they never named him by name. Um, but he was basically the, the, the John Doe who, uh, who the media later figured out and outed him as the John Doe who they were claiming had downloaded 50,000 votes in favor of Biden, as if that's what was required in order for Biden to win suburban Philadelphia, which I think went 75 percent and has historically for years in favor of the Democrat. But putting that aside for a minute, you know, he claims intentional infliction of emotional distress. He claims, you know, um, other other physical and mental and emotional harms. He said he had two or three heart attacks related to it. You know, there's going to be some arguments. We'll follow the case about whether, you know, he was in the zone of 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 consequential people, you know, that 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 could have been injured by these statements. I think he is. But I would have made a narrower case. I would have made a simpler case um, and a faster case to get to the truth and get to justice than this one. But we'll follow this one. I think our our followers and listeners will like to hear updates on this. That is because you are a genius, Popak. This podcast is sponsored by Policy Genius. And I want to talk to you briefly about the importance of life insurance. If someone relies on your financial support, whether it's a child, aging parent, or even a business partner, you need life insurance to properly provide for their families. Most people need 10 times the amount of life insurance coverage than what they are getting through their employer. So Popak, tell us why Policy Genius. Yeah, Policy Genius, which we've been thrilled to have as a sponsor on a few pods now, makes it easy to compare quotes from over a dozen top insurers all in one place. Why compare? Because you could save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. Genius. You could save 1300 or more per year on life insurance alone by using Policy Genius to compare those policies. The licensed experts at Policy Genius 
work for you, not the insurance company. So you can trust them to help you navigate every step of the shopping and buying process. That kind of service, Ben, has earned Policy Genius thousands of five-star reviews, much like Legal AF, across Trustpilot and Google. And eligible applicants can get covered for life insurance in as little as a week, thanks to an award-winning policy option that swaps the standard medical exam requirement for a simple phone call. This exclusive policy was recently rated number one by Forbes Advisor, and that puts them higher than options from Ladder, Ethos, and Bestow. Getting started is easy. First, head to policygenius.com slash legal AF. That's policygenius.com slash legal AF. In minutes, you can work out how much life insurance coverage you need and compare personalized quotes to find your best price. When you're ready to apply, the Policy Genius team will handle the paperwork and scheduling for free. Policy Genius does not add on extra fees. So what do you do? Head to policygenius.com slash legal AF to get started right now. That's Policy Genius. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. Popak, let's talk about Trump's claims of executive privilege, or rather his claims to try to cover up his role in the January 6th Speaking of not getting it right. Let's go to Trump and executive privilege. I think we talked about this on past podcasts of Legal AF that Trump's uh, claim for executive privilege regarding uh, information arising out of the January 6th insurrection is dubious. As we know, the January 6th committee subpoenaed records from the National Archives post-Nixon. And Nixon, the law was basically a little bit of a free-for-all. Presidents could basically spoliate and try to destroy their records and and not have the sunshine that we need. I point out the law of Nixon because Trump's dumb fuck lawyer, um, in my opinion, is a dumb fuck lawyer. That's a DFL. (laughs) Trump's lawyer cites the law uh, that Nixon used that we all agreed as a country was bad so that there was an actual law passed by Congress to deal with this specific situation where the records would be transferred to the National Archives for subpoena and for records request in these purposes and that the privilege, the executive privilege, lies with the executive, the current executive, not the loser former guy. And generally where there is comedy, C-O-M-I-T-Y, between presidential administrations and they're in agreement because executive privilege furthers our democracy, presidents may agree and say, hey, this is a legitimate executive privilege. But where a prior president's trying to engage in a cover-up of criminal acts to engage in a coup, guess what? The future presidents and executives are going to say, uh-uh-uh. And so Trump's lawyers had a hearing in front of the District Court of D.C., in front of a judge who we talked about before. Tanya Chutkin. And it didn't exactly go, we don't have a ruling yet, but it didn't seem to really go in Trump's favor. Well, what happened when, at the hearing, Popa? When the judge laughs out loud, and I've heard the recording, at your, at your arguments, it's probably going terribly for you. The first thing that went terrible for them is they pulled Hang 'em High Chutkin, who we've talked about in the sentencing context, as the judge, an Obama appointee. 
Rewind you one second, put back. It sure. started going bad when Trump hired a lawyer who identifies himself as quote a MAGA lawyer. Yes, well, that, he, that that's what they. <laughs> that's true. They have that's true. They have a lawyer who. This is all that's left to, to Trump to hire. It's not like legitimate lawyers like you and I are going to join him any longer. So yes, they had he had one of these MAGA lawyers who's done all sorts of nutty things and and argued um, about conspiracy theories and and stealing the election as the lawyer. So that lawyer gets up there and the battle that he thought he was going to be having with the judge was about Nixon versus General Services Administration, a 1974 case on the books of the Supreme Court in which Nixon, as you as you mentioned or touched on, was trying to keep certain recordings. We all know now that Nixon had 24-7 audio recordings going on in the White House, in the Oval Office, and he was trying to keep uh, batches of those things, which are national records, should have been in the archives, um, from being disclosed and used against them in any way and tried to exert executive privilege. So in that case, since 1974, the Supreme Court was a little bit mushy about whether the executive privilege could be asserted by a former president in con contrast to the sitting president. But all that got resolved in 1978 when the federal government, when Congress passed the Presidential Records Act. So Chuck can sort of cut the lawyer off at the pass and said, well, why are you arguing the Nixon precedent when Congress changed that law in 1978 and now everything has to go to the National Archives? And it's quite clear in that new act that Congress passed that it's the sitting president that holds the executive privilege and can make the decision whether to waive it or not, and not the former, the former president. Why are you talking about the former president having a right to waive or not waive or assert the privilege. And you know what? You know, he, the, the lawyer for Trump just kind of, you know, he's already kamikaze anyway. So he just sort of doubles down on it and says, well, that may be true. But, you know, this president that's sitting there today is the incumbent president. He can't be trusted with with uh, exercising the privilege. I don't know why that would be possible. And you have to rely on the guy that was involved in the coup instead for deciding whether the record should be uh, should be uh, covered or not. And then led to the chuckle moment. The chuckle moment was when the, the lawyer actually said with a straight face that Trump had been cleared by the FBI and Homeland Security of any improper conduct on Jan 6th. And the judge said, where is that? What's your support for that statement? And then the lawyer said there was an article on Reuters that quoted the FBI and the judge said, stop. Your basis for saying that President Trump was cleared of any wrongdoing is a an article by a news media outlet. And this would be the left wing media, by the way, Reuters quoting some FBI report or agent. That's your support. And so she laughed out loud at the guy. And I'm sure he lost if he had any credibility or a shred of it when he walked into the courtroom, sort of went out the window. She's going to rule quickly. Um, here's the Popak Masaliusian prediction. She's going to rule the next week that the National Archives can turn over the records um, on November 14th or so, whatever the date was exactly, to the Jan 6 Commission. And if he doesn't like it, he's going to have to try to take an emergency appeal to the to the Supreme Court. Absolutely. And two observations here. One observation. I always love it 
when that GQP MAGA echo chamber has to like bring those absurd conspiracies and arguments into a forum of actual thinkers where thinkers can challenge their ideas. Um, This is why Trump lost 70 of his bullshit cases when he was trying to engage in the coup, because they were all completely and utterly absurd. And that's what happened here when this lawyer was the MAGA lawyer was spouting MAGA, the legal equivalent of flat earth legal arguments to a judge. And the judge saying, what the hell are you talking about? But here's another observation I want to make, too. This is why having federal judges who are not part of that echo chamber are so important. Trump got through a number of echo chamber judges who are now actually federal district court judges who would approach this argument very different, who may agree with the lawyer. Trump's MAGA lawyer is a type of person who Trump would try to appoint uh, to the judiciary um, when Trump was president. So those arguments you're hearing, there are some federal judges who would potentially buy that argument, as crazy as that sounds. And I so agree. while it's important for us to hold Joe Manchin and Cinema accountable, let's also be thankful, though, that Democrats have a majority in the Senate, as slim as it is, because the most important thing Biden's doing now is the one of the least discussed things. His appointment of federal judges to district courts and circuit courts is the and courts of appeal is the most important thing that he's doing right now. And I don't yeah. want to it's we're not going to lose that. And if McConnell was in charge of the Senate, he would not allow any of these nominees to no go way. forward, period. No way. I agree with that. The only thing just to, just to put a final period on the executive privilege uh, hearing with Judge Chutkin. My sense from reading the oral argument is that she may give them a very small bone, which is to narrow slightly the scope of the Jan 6 uh, committee's subpoena because they want to roll it back to April 2020. And I'm not sure, or roll it forward to April 2020. And I'm not sure she's going to give them all of that in order to figure out what happened on Jan 6. But that that may be the only thing she does with a blue pencil. She just narrows the scope a bit, uh, uh, tailors it just a little bit more. Other than that, those records are going over to the Jan 6 committee. And just one, one more thing, to have Trump's lawyer argue that uh, these records were confidential uh, totally falls in the face of the fact that The president's a public position. This is a public steward. And time and time again in this oral argument, uh, the general counsel for the House of Representatives and the representative from the DOJ kept on reminding him, the president's a public position. This is public. These records are presumed to be public. There's no confidentiality around these records. And then Trump's lawyer would say, well, he's the president, you know, basically arguing that the president should be should you know should be like treated as a king popak let's give the update on sb8 the oral argument uh, of this heinous and horrific and uh, unconstitutional which will likely be declared unconstitutional law by uh, the supreme court oral argument was held november 1 remember the substance of roe v wade the substance of the abortion ban is not specifically at issue in this case that's coming up soon 
in December one, when there's an oral argument on the Mississippi case where there is a state law essentially banning abortions abortions after 15 weeks, which is a direct challenge to Roe v. Wade. Um, This law addresses the federal, this case, an oral argument on November 1, addresses the federal government's power to enjoin or stop a state law, in this case, the Texas law, which basically deputizes private individuals to take out bounties on people who aid and assist in the process of getting an abortion. Um, We've talked uh, at nauseum about uh, why we think this law is unconstitutional. I mean, number one, it goes against Supreme Court precedents and deputizes private individuals to go around Supreme Court precedent. But it seems that the Supreme Court agreed um, that it is unconstitutional. Popak, what do you observe with the Supreme Court? Why did it and why were certain justices who would not typically seem to be sympathetic with the Department of Justice position in joining Texas. Why do they seem sympathetic here? All right, so let me update um, our listeners and followers. I thought going into the hearing on Monday, which was a three hour oral argument done in two sessions. If you remember, two cases from Judge Pittman in Austin, Texas, came up together, were joined together on the docket for the oral argument. One brought by the abortion providers, and one brought by the Department of Justice in the name of the United States versus Texas. Both cases challenging a number of things, the constitutionality of SB8 fundamentally at the heart of it, but also the procedural bounty aspect of it where Texas, too smart by half, to paraphrase Justice Kagan at the oral argument, tried to, or as she put it, who are these geniuses that thought they could do an end run around sitting Supreme Court precedent since 1908, putting that aside for a minute, those geniuses came up with the idea there will be no state actors by name. We will deputize individual citizens who will sue the abortion providers and people that facilitate abortions directly, therefore will avoid federal court review and federal constitutional review of our plainly unconstitutional SB8 abortion ban. And and that's how we're going to do it. So all of the judges have got tied up in knots, starting not with Pittman, because he was very clear that he felt he had the jurisdiction to make the ruling on the constitutionality. But certainly the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals didn't. And originally, two months ago, the Supreme Court, in looking at an emergency appeal of the abortion providers a case, thought that it was very complicated, the whole procedural mechanism, and they weren't ready to hear it. So they let it come back up with the U.S. versus Texas case. So we have three hour hearing. You When you and I talked last week, I thought it was going to be Sotomayor, who's written all of the very poignant dissents here, that was going to take the lead and really bash Texas position and lead the intellectual thought process on that bench of nine people. It wasn't. It was Kagan. No surprise, it's her ideological twin, but it was Justice Kagan who most eloquently went after and attacked and picked up the pieces when she saw that a Kavanaugh or an Amy Coney Barrett was making a point where it looked like they were leaning in the direction of finding that procedurally SB8 
was defective and could be reviewed by a federal court on federal constitutional grounds. She ran with it. So there were there were two sessions. They started the, the conversation with the abortion providers and they ended it with the U.S. versus um, Texas case. But of course, there were there was common arguments and common questioning that ran through the entire three hours. What it looks like when the dust settled is that there's going to be at least five, if not six votes, if they vote the way that they were asking questions, there's going to be at least a majority that finds that the that SB8 can can be reviewed by a federal court on federal constitutional grounds, notwithstanding the language of SB8. That's all that's going to be decided, which means, and this is where you and I had a little bit of a debate last week, I think that decision comes out in the next 30 days before Mississippi's case is heard about whether abortions can be banned less than 23 weeks, between 15 and 23 weeks, taking on the heart of Roe v. Wade and Casey. I think they issue this early. I think it comes out in the next 30 days before the argument in December. And I think it then gets sent back procedurally back to Judge Pittman and back to the Fifth Circuit with instructions from the U.S. Supreme Court that you federal judges are empowered to review the constitutionality of SB 8 and regardless of what the bounty law mechanism says. And then you work that up on briefing, bring, we'll bring that back up to the Supreme Court on a proper appeal while we go move on to Mississippi and the substantive arguments of Roe v. Wade. What do you think? Justice Kavanaugh, who you think would perhaps be a sympathizer with the SB8 law, was very critical of the law, but not for the reasons you think. He basically, in his question, said, wait a minute. If you can do this um, for a woman's right to choose, hmm, couldn't a blue state basically pass a law like this when it comes to gun control? And couldn't you do an end run around our precedents of the Second Amendment, which Popek and I will talk about in a little bit? Couldn't you do an end run around it? And couldn't a state pass a similar bounty law where people are suing individuals for aiding and abetting others in obtaining firearms despite our rulings? And then the uh, Texas uh, lawyer, the ruler representing Texas, had to concede, yeah, that would, we would, you'd be able to do that. So leave it to a white male justice to basically protect his guns as finding a way to also, uh, on this particular case, potentially strike down a law like SBA. I was less troubled by that than some of the reading I did in preparation for tonight's podcast. I know people are saying, what does guns have to do with abortion? And like you just said, leave it to a white male to use that. I, I was less concerned about that. I thought, and Kagan really shoved it back up Kavanaugh's backside in the second session when she used that exact same uh, line of questioning against Texas in the DOJ case. Because why is that even important? It's because the the federal Supreme Court, the, the, the Supreme Court that declares what is the law of the land, that's their job in the co-equal branches of government since 1801. If they don't have that job, they might as well put out a gone fishing sign and they go out of business. Because if they can't declare fundamentally what the federal constitution provides, in a case arising out of a state action, 
They're sort of out of business. And I think that is the fear that all the justices had, and even the conservative justice had, which is, what are we doing? We're going to let states decide when we have the power and jurisdiction to declare federal constitutional rights? No way. And I think he used the Second Amendment to drive home the point to the Texas guy, who's probably a gun-toting attorney general or solicitor general, whatever he is, to say, really, you want us? You want to do that? Kagan put it even better, Ben. Kagan said she called them unpreferred constitutional rights, meaning there are certain states where they are constitutional rights, and they are what they say they are. They're the rights in, that are embodied and guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution. But some states may prefer some rights over others. Like you can choose. The problem with that analysis is you can't choose. All constitutional rights are are almost equal. I mean, some are given a little more priority than others when there's a when there's a conflict between constitutional rights. But all constitutional rights, if it's in the Constitution or the court has declared it, have have power and weight, and you are not allowed as a state to pick and choose. I like this one. I like this one on religious, uh, the division of church and state, stay out of my church, but I don't like this one because I want to go into your bedroom. You don't get to choose that. And I love the her turn of the phrase because it was so withering in its eloquence, unpreferred constitutional rights. You may not like guns, same sex, reproductive rights, but are we going to make it with that? And she, she said it this way. Are we going to make it that we're open for business, that states can just ignore the, 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 the power of the U.S. Supreme Court to declare the law of the land? There's no way they're going to do that. They may even get eight to one on SBA, certainly a majority. That's the prediction. I get a little nervous, though, Popak, about where we are headed, though, on December one in the Mississippi case, because yeah. uh, a lot of the right wing justices who uh, did not favor SB8 here, though, made a number of comments to that uh, basically said, why do we come on, Texas? Like, why do we really even care about this SB8? Like, you know what we're about to do in <laughs> in December. I mean, they didn't say it like that, but right. they they, they, they might as well have said it like that. And um, uh, I, I think there was one statement that was even made, um, and I forget which justice made it, but a right wing justice basically saying, do you think that the reductions in, bor in abortions are really being caused by SB8 or the fact that people know what's coming in the future? It was Alito. It was Alito. And what do you, and, and the answer was so effing disingenuous. Did you, what was the response? The response is, I don't know. <laughs> OK, so Kagan ran with that in the second session and said, we have the chilling effect of SBA writ large in the last two months because abortions have dropped by 80 percent. And this asshole actually stood in front of the well of the U.S. Supreme Court and said, no, I, I don't know why abortions are down I don't, <laughs> in, in Texas. It, it could but be the fact things. that Alito, but Alito was goading him to like to, to imply that it was also because people know that abortions may be banned in the future. I agree with you know, that. And, and so that was a whole very not so you think. Wait, let me ask you. So you think we're that that they're just arranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, that none of this really matters become come December. If they can get five votes, Roe v. Wade, as we know, it is out the window. Is that your view? 
Yeah. And, and I don't think it's, I don't think you'll see a, anything in an opinion that says Roe v. Wade is no longer the law of the land. They're going to act like Roe v. Wade still exists, but they're going to gut it so much and, and give such deference to states to pass laws like the one we see in Mississippi, in this- my view. Despite the fact that 80 percent of the population believes abortion should be legalized. I just think they have. I think the talking about arranging the decks of the the chairs on the decks of the Titanic, that's the the decks have been arranged in the Supreme Court. They have the votes to do this. This is exactly what they want to do. Now is the time to do it. They bring all these abortion cases, you know, in front of them. And I believe that's the reason they're going to do it. I want to give one observation. We're going to say, Popak. Good. I was going to well, I was going to do a quick quickie on SBA before we leave it. Oh, do, get, th- do, do the quickie and I'll make an observation. Okay. of what One of my Canadian do, friends told one, me one thing that annoyed me and others. And one thing that I thought, again, was Kagan Kagan's brilliance. Kagan Kagan's comment, which I think will survive in the the ultimate opinion. If and if she's in the majority and she's asked to write it, I wouldn't be surprised if Kagan ends up writing it. But she said because they were talking about these very esoteric concepts of a, of a case from 1908 called uh, Ex Parte Young, which has to do with whether a state actor can be enjoined from violating the federal constitution in a federal court. It's a whole doctrine about separations, of, not separation of power, but comedy and federal, federalism and all of that. And she said, what geniuses came up with SB8 that thought they could do away with over 100 years of precedent. Great line. But the thing that really annoyed me and others is how little respect uh, Gorsuch and others showed for the Solicitor General, who's a female Solicitor General, Elizabeth Prelongar. Uh, I mean, there's a whole there's a whole thing that came out earlier this year about Sotomayor um, saying that the rules have changed with Roberts because it was empirically true that female justices were being cut off from asking questions by their male colleagues more than male colleagues were being cut off in their questioning. And it happened over and over and over again. And when they took that evidence to Roberts, he changed the rules to to make sure that all justices and especially the female justices are not cut off when they're doing their questioning at the Supreme Court. So discrimination even happens within the U.S. Supreme Court. But they showed no respect to the female solicitor general in her arguments. Absolutely. And um, just an incredible person, Elizabeth Preliger, if you look at her backstory and her history. I mean, she is uh, 39, 40 years old um, and representing the United States in front of the Supreme Court at the highest level. I mean, just uh, an incredibly accomplished person. And it was really unfortunate uh, to see that a lot of commentators uh, said the same thing, how annoyed they were as well about that Popak. Um, switching gears for a second, Popak updates in criminal investigations into the Trump organization and into Rudy Giuliani. First, let's start with the Manhattan DA convening um, a new special uh, grand jury, the other grand jury into the Trump investigation. I guess they serve six month terms. And so the other one expired. And so a new grand jury is being impaneled that will serve another term um, is taking quite a long time. Just to remind our listeners, this is the investigation into um, the Trump organization's various tax related schemes, um, payments to employees that were improper. And this is uh, one of the reasons that their CFO is currently um, being criminally prosecuted for 
basically taking a ton of money without reporting it to the IRS. Um, but but generally, the broader claims into the Trump organization are really avoiding paying taxes at the end of the day and engaging in a number of tax well, fraud related schemes. That's the investigation. Yeah. Why is it well, taking so long? Yeah. I, again, I, you know, I'm going to people know I'm, I'm very um, honest. Asian Popak. I don't. Well, I don't blow smoke. Or sun, I don't blow smoke or sunshine. I have been well, you blowing in, smoke all episode today. <laughs> no, I'm inhaling. <laughs> um, it, I, it's because I've been on the defense side in criminal cases and I know that it can take years. I mean, I've been involved when I, you know, in, in, in my prior life with two year, three year investigations by multiple regulatory authorities and prosecutorial agencies over conduct to get to the bottom of it. So the fact that in the first six months of the special general um, grand jury that Cy Vance, the outgoing Manhattan district attorney, he's replaced in January, because he didn't run for office, his term was over. Alvin Bragg, the first black Manhattan district attorney takes over in January. And there is this little period, this interstitial period between the end of Cy Vance and the beginning of Alvin Bragg that the first grand jury would have expired. So to help out his successor, Cy Vance went and got authority to, uh, to impanel a second special grand jury that'll run three days a week for the next six months that he'll use from now till January. And Alvin Bragg and his people will use from January forward. The first special prosecutor's grand jury led to the indictment of the Trump organization and, and, uh, Weiss, and Weisselberg, the CFO for the Trump organization, related to basically income tax fraud on benefits given to uh, and from the Trump organization that were not uh, properly taxed. The second, in, what I understand from the media and from reports, is that the new focus of the Manhattan District Attorney in combination with Tish James, the uh, Attorney General for New York, is on loan valuation fraud, separate, separate from what was done in the special grand jury the first time around. Now we're looking at, as you said, a different type of tax evasion, but loan valuation. Why? Because as Michael Cohen had testified, our fellow podcaster, is that when Trump wanted to borrow money and needed to show a balance sheet of a lot of assets, he would inflate the price or the value of his golf courses, hotels, single family home developments, buildings, licensing agreements, they would be up, up, up. Why? Because the loan to value ratio, you got to have a lot of money, especially if you're a personal guarantor, which he is, he was a lot. He wouldn't be now. He's, he's, he's a, he would never be given a loan on his own name, but so he pumps it up. But then when he wants to recover or lower his taxes, he lowers the value. It's like a, it's like a balloon. And now he shrinks the value of those assets. So they're looking at the manipulation of loan value, of asset value by the Trump by Trump throughout. That's one. Secondly, they're looking at things as arcane as how much does the Trump organization charge for golf course memberships, which is like two or three hundred thousand dollars, because Trump often uses that when he's negotiating with lenders or he's negotiating with taxing authorities to show the health of his organization. And they think he's been manipulating that number 
in order to also commit loan fraud and ultimately tax fraud. So everyone's like, oh my God, it's been six months. What are the, there, there are so many things that the Trump organization and Trump has done criminally wrong that it would, it takes more than one term of one prosecutor in one office to get it all in front of a grand jury. Patience, there'll be more indictments. Patience, Popak, AKA PP, probably a smooth transition into Adam and Eve. This podcast is brought to you by Adam and Eve. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you love more, right, Popak? I, uh, more is better. <laughs> well, adamandeve.com wants to give you more. With 50% off just about any item, plus free shipping on your entire order. I got more for you. So what do you have to do to get your 50% off one item and free shipping? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. Go to Adam and Eve. They've got for her. They got for him. They got for couples. For them. They've got lingerie, Popak. Wait, wait, don't stop on that. Okay, I'm glad they have lingerie for Popak. But listen, mm-hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give one last personal observation because I like this sponsor. In my life, I have been in brick and mortar versions of what Adam and Eve provides on their website. It could be fun. It could also be like embarrassing. Like when somebody says price check and they hold up the, they hold up the item you're interested in. You don't have to do that with Adam and Eve. You can shop from the privacy of your own home and get that same experience. Just go to adamandeve.com, select any one item. Again, it could be an adventurous new toy or anything you desire just enter offer code legal AF at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item. Go to adamandeve.com today, select one item and get 50% off, including free shipping when you enter offer code legal AF. That's legal, L E G A L A F, legal. AF at adamandeve.com. Go to adamandeve.com. That's a good code for uh, for adamandeve.com. And the other um, uh, plug, no pun intended, that I want to make here is for uh, Popak and Ben. We've got a number of... Uh, we, we, we've Finally. Got, we've got a number of people who reached out and we're asking, hey, do you... Do you handle these types of cases? You know, I think people think, Popak, because we talk about these grand constitutional cases, that those are the only types of things that we handle. But we have law firms. We have lawyers who work for us. We are in the trenches of a lot of cases. So somebody reached out to us the other day and was in a really bad car accident. And they asked us for advice. It wasn't in a state where we practice, but we linked them with a great personal injury lawyer. Um, in a state that we knew would handle their case very well. So it could be something like that. If you're in a car accident or a friend or someone is in an accident or has an injury or, you know, was injured somewhere, you know, and we usually handle more significant catastrophic injuries, but reach out. We're happy to assess your case. Breach of contract, business dispute cases. Popak and I represent a lot of founders who have been kicked out of kind of companies that have large valuations. We've worked in business disputes, um, 
complex business disputes for clients. So if you have a case, if you've been injured, if you know someone who's been injured, feel free to reach out to me, ben at midastouch.com, ben at midastouch.com, or you can reach out to Popak at mpopak, M-P-O-P-O-K at zplaw.com, mpopak at zplaw.com. We will do our best to get back to you. And again, feel free to reach out to us. But yes, we do do. And there are people at our firms who handle those personal injury cases. And one more thing, both you and I and our firms have a national trial practice. Our practices are not are not centered only or anchored only in your city in California and I'm sitting in New York. You have offices in different locations. So do I. We're in Chicago and Las Vegas and Salt Lake City, um, New York and Miami. But I have cases and, and with you all across the country, a national practice. And so do you. So if somebody's sitting in fill in the blank state and think, oh, crap, Popox only admitted in a couple of states, we we take cases throughout the country. We retain local counsel. We get admitted, especially in that particular jurisdiction, and we can handle that case. And if it's advice giving, because we're also counselors at law, I give as much business advice as I am litigating cases. We can certainly do that um, depending upon the type of situation. And there are many cases that we or I will handle on a contingency, meaning we're not charging you any money or an hourly rate unless and until we recover. Um, so the advice and consultation is free. And, and if we recover money, then you know there's a percentage, uh, but otherwise um, there's no like hourly fee for a lot of those cases. So anyway, moving on, Popak to the- You, you uh, want to do Giuliani? Ah, yeah. I, I, Duty Giuliani brings me down, but we could talk about Duty Giuliani. Give me one minute. I'll do I'll it. I'll give in you one minute, minute to touch Duty Giuliani. Go All right. For it. So, yeah, there's a prosecution update with Giuliani. So the Southern District of New York, we've talked about this 15 podcasts ago, is now focused, the reports are, on one particular bad thing, Giuliani and his two colleagues, Vicky Tunsing and Joe DiGiovona, have done, which is to get into bed with the um, a, a Ukrainian prosecutor, Yuri Lutsenko, and come up with a scheme where Lutsenko and the Ukrainian prosecutor's office would hire Giuliani and his other lawyers on a contract, all bullshit, in order to basically buy influence over Trump, but it would be a contract for the private legal services of Giuliani, hundreds of thousands of dollars to do who knows what. And in return, the Ukrainian prosecutors would announce a investigation of Hunter Biden and his involvement with Burisma, which is an energy company sitting in the Ukraine. So you have so this is what the Southern District now is focused on. And this is and and whether uh, Giuliani w- did not properly um, uh, record himself or, or um, uh, announce that he was a foreign actor, a foreign agent working for a foreign government, which is a crime, um, as, is, as would be for the other two people. So this, again, the, the noose is tightening here around Giuliani, focused on his involvement with Hunter Biden, Burisma, Ukrainian prosecutors, and getting paid and put money in lining his pockets with cash in order to peddle influence over Trump. Let's talk about this Second Amendment case that went before 
the Supreme Court this week. The case is New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. It, it, versus Bruin. it involves a law that was passed in New York regulating concealed handguns. Um, and in this particular law, it requires an individual who is having a concealed handgun uh, to show, quote, proper cause. And the Supreme Court focused on this standard that was that existed in New York of this extra showing of proper cause. Judge Kavanaugh asked, why isn't it good enough just to say I live in a violent area? Doesn't that satisfy the standard of proper cause? Um, there hasn't been a lot of Second Amendment real landmark cases since the Heller decision, um, which 2008, uh, 2008. So w- what's going on here, Popa? Yeah. And let me let me preface it by saying and I've said it on another podcast. I- I'm sort of the right wing's worst nightmare because I am both a card carrying member of the ACLU. And in the past, I've had a concealed weapons permit when I lived in Florida for personal safety purposes. And I did everything right. I got registered. I didn't, I don't have a criminal background. I learned how to use a weapon. I, I had to take a test in, on gun safety and on licensing. And I always, always, always uh, was very respectful that I was carrying something of lethal force and only used it for self-protection. And I think since Heller, at least, that that isn't appropriate. I'm not in favor of AK-47s. I'm not in favor of tanks. I'm not in favor of high high velocity um, uh, weapons or or magazines with with thousands, you know, hundreds of rounds, but I am in favor of that. So I watched with interest the the second amendment argument, which came up from the second circuit. Second circuit had found that the New York law that was on the books for over a hundred years that had this additional requirement of showing this cause in order to get a handgun or to get personal or to bear arms, if you will, was constitutional, even under Heller. Here's the problem. The problem is in reality, no one can satisfy, almost no one can satisfy the requirement in the state of New York, unless you own a liquor store or a pawn shop or you're, you're, you're sort of in the quasi-governmental uh, or security mode, the average citizen never satisfies this, unless you know a cop and he can help you get it. It's a whole, it's a whole shadow market going on in New York, one that I have not taken advantage of. But the reality is no one can exercise. If it is a constitutional right, which it has been since 2008 under the Heller decision, then the question is, does New York's additional requirement, which results in almost no one being able to exercise the right, constitutional? And the writing is on the wall. This is going to go down six, here's the prediction, six to three at least, that the New York law as written is going to be found to be unconstitutional, allowing for, with regulation, with permitting, with licensing, with restrictions not to be able to bring it into schools or stadiums, but there's gonna be concealed carry as a constitutional right following this argument. What do you think? I agree with you, that's gonna be the outcome. And, you know, I, I, I haven't read it yet, but um, let yeah. me send you something that my buddy from Canada sent me just <laughs> about their right wing versus our right wing here in the United States. He texts me, he goes, 
quote, our supposed crazy right wing prime minister, Stephen Harper, came down hard on parliamentarians who made anti-abortion comments. He maintained all gun control. And aside from a brief stupid hesitation on Syrian refugee admissions, was very pro-multiculturalism. And so just looking north, the idea of common sense gun control, not worshiping firearms, um, common sense protections on a woman and childbearing person's right to choose, you sometimes forget just how strange our country is sometimes on these laws, you know, and, you know, this, this, it is a strange standard um, that had to be satisfied here, you know, because it is kind of a, a subjective standard of like what constitutes, like, how do you meet the standard? Who's ruling on the standard? Is it a right or is it not a right? That That's the fundamental. And, and to your point, and you've raised this a lot. It's been a thread that you've pulled through here in all of our legal AFs. You know, you've got the, of course, all of the uh, right wing on the Supreme Court who are all federal, who worship at the altar of the Federalist Society and claim to be textualists like like Coney Barrett and Kavanaugh and and Gorsuch now um, and Alito and the rest of them are all like we need to go look at what the what the founding fathers would have thought about brandishing a handgun or a weapon in the public. They love the text, the text of the Constitution and what was in the framers mind when it suits them. But of course, when it doesn't suit them, they say, well, we shouldn't really be hamstrung by that. Let's just make new law. Yeah. And we've read what the actual Second Amendment says. And I'll just read it one more time for everybody listening. This is what the Second Amendment actually says. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the sec security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. I pause during comma. So a well-regulated militia, comma, being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, comma, shall not be infringed. And the right wingers basically just read out the entire first sentence right. and they just say the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Which is what the framers would have written if they wanted it to be an unlimited <laughs> right to bear arms. It's the one area in the Constitution that literally uses the word regulation. Right. It says a well-regulated <laughs> militia, even if you wanted to read out the word militia, it talks about regulation in it. So yeah. clearly what the founders would envision, I don't have to divine this clearly it, when you're yeah. talking about militarized weapons or or AR-15s or whatever, like oh, that is something and, that would and, be well-regulated. And why do we have that? Why is that now the law of the land of 2008? One, just to remind people, elections have consequences. One vote. It was a five to four decision uh, on the Heller case that established an individual right to bear to to keep and bear arms. And now everything flows from that forward. One vote. And we're never going to reverse it anytime soon, because now the, the Supreme Court has, has gotten even more right wing with a six to three majority. So we have to win the next election, win the election after that, win the election after that, keep replacing Supreme Court justices with more moderate, more states people like Supreme Court justices. So this is going to be on the books for the next, you know, in the in the current form for the next 20 to 30 years until we get the chance, unless unless the, the commission comes out and somehow we pack the court with, you know, five more or six more Supreme Court justices.
touch briefly on this. A federal lawsuit accused the NRA of violating campaign finance laws by using shell companies to illegally funnel up to $35 million to Republican candidates uh, over the past 10 years, including Donald Trump, uh, Senator Howley from Missouri, and others. This was filed by the Campaign Legal Center, filed the lawsuit last Tuesday in Washington on behalf of Giffords, a gun control nonprofit founded by former Democratic U.S. Representative Gabby Giffords, and it accuses the NRA of practices dating to 2014, quote, to evade campaign finance regulations. A big number, $35 million worth of of federal campaign evasion. I think it's more than that, too. I think that's what they were able to trace and identify. But the NRA has been able to basically get a lot of outside money. And I think it's been reported foreign outside money as well. Um, funneled through the NRA as this quote unquote nonprofit. Again, Letitia James in New York challenged that nonprofit status. We talked on Legal AF about uh, the efforts that were done by the NRA in past episodes to try to declare bankruptcy in Texas. And it was all, you know, and, and tried to, you know, Letitia James says, this is not a nonprofit, but in any event, I just want to touch, just touch briefly on that lawsuit. The NRA is in a world of trouble and it seems that uh, maybe the NRA's uh, front is uh, rifles and guns, but in reality uh, that's the front, but it's a funnel that was, uh, pouring millions and millions of dollars into the coffers of Republicans uh, through means that were not legal. We will follow up with that more. We get Hope one on. more in, Ben. You get this next one in. We'll set a record for legal AF and the amount of stories that we cover. Go. We have we have Rittenhouse and we have DOJ suing Texas for voting on the uh, for their SB one law that Texas did to basically prevent uh, voter turnout. Uh, you want to start with Rittenhouse? Yeah, let's do Rittenhouse. Go. Popak All right. Rittenhouse. <laughs> Rittenhouse. Uh, Rittenhouse is easy. Their jury yeah. selection. Uh, one of the jurors was dismissed for a racist joke. Um, and terrible, a terrible racist joke that he and, told and I don't to think a bailiff. To say racist joke. I, I, yeah. I should probably correct myself. Um, he was dismissed for being a fucking racist. Let's just right. say that. Right. Yeah, he made he made a comment to the bailiff who handles the movement of jurors from room to room at breaks um, and and how he got through the voir dire process, the jury selection process. You know, that's because you don't ask a question like have you ever told a have you ever told a story whose punchline was racist? Maybe I might add that to my new voir dire because this guy got through. That was listen, it was only two days of jury selection. This, this judge does a very fast jury selection. And there's only so many questions you can ask and so much information as lawyers that you can find. And then you have a limited number of strikes just to bring the, the, the listeners up to our uh, jury selection process. The selection process you and I go through takes a long time. I get five or six strikes. The other side gets five or six strikes. You got a panel of 200. You got it. You only, that's all you can do. There's some that are dismissed for cause because 
they can't speak English properly. They, they've said, it doesn't matter who the guy is, I'm going to convict him or something else stupid. And then there's other ones that are permissive or voluntary. So, you know, you're left with that as your jury at the end. The other thing the judge has done just to, to let everybody know is there are 20 jur, uh, pan, uh, members of the jury that are seated in the box listening to testimony and evidence every day. They don't know even the 20 don't know, and the lawyers don't know, and the judge doesn't know yet who the 12 that are going to be asked to deliberate are. So there's eight alternates that are sitting in the box, but we don't know, in the, and none of the participants know which are the alternates and which are the actual jurors. Only on the day of deliberation, at the end of the trial, when the judge says, okay, Here's the numbers of the 12 that are actually the jurors who are going to decide this case. So this, we don't know if the guy was a, a, an alternate or he was an actual juror because he's one of the 20. And he told a, a ridiculous comment against Mr. Blake, who was paralyzed by the police that led to the riots that led to this Rittenhouse event in Kenosha where he murdered two people. They got him off. Now they're down to 19. And, you know, that's the seven R spares, if you will, uh, to make sure that there's always 12 uh, because you're going to lose one or two during the course of a long trial anyway, uh, for this reason or for other reasons. So the judge is trying to maintain. So it's not a waste of time on the on the trial that we always have your 12. That's what's happened here. Opening statements happened. We'll keep a close eye on it. The, the biggest development was the juror. To, and there's already been two witnesses that have gone forward for the prosecution. Um, some of it has been good for the prosecution. Some of it has not been so great for the prosecution. We'll follow it more closely and give an update next week. But you always have to be focused on, on these cases during jury selection, especially very high profile cases is what's called a stealth juror, right. a juror who doesn't answer the questions in voir dire truthfully and who's either going on because they have a mission, a mission to convict a mission to exonerate, but they are there. Or be with, famous, a mission to write a book and be famous. Or exactly. So um, one of those three, or there could be a variety of other reasons, but you as a lawyer have to sometimes find, not just as the person answering my questions, uh, uh, you know, with depending on how the answers are truthfully, but is this person really at the end of the day is what they're saying, what they truly believe, or do they actually have an ulterior motive, which is one of the aspects that makes jury selection even difficult. And on a case like this with Kyle Rittenhouse, all it takes, you have to have a unanimous jury. So all it could take is one juror, out of basically 12. out of 12, right. who says that Kyle is not guilty to have a hung jury and have to go through the process of a trial all over again. Popak, let's hit DOJ. We're setting a record. Set the record right now, Department of Justice suing the state of Texas for violating Voting Rights Act. So DOJ, after, you know, feeling good about their lawsuit against Texas for SB8, now going after SB1, the slew of uh, unconstitutional um, uh, laws that Texas has been passing. SB1 makes it more difficult for Texas voters to access the ballots for 
Republicans post 2020, their view across all states is the way we can win elections is make it more difficult to vote. That's the analysis that they made. They're, they're, they may be wrong about that analysis, though, because what we saw in Virginia actually is that access to early access to voting actually favored um, Republicans. So it's possible. Well, the Republicans. It used to historically early voting was the dominion of Republicans. Democrats got it in the COVID world, um, but historically it had always been early votes were didn't go 80% for the Democrats. It went for the Republicans. Well, Democrats got it in the COVID world because dumb right. fuck Trump was telling people not to do it. Like that's, he was telling his supporters <laughs> don't vote and it's right. fraudulent when it's not fraudulent. And that actually would have favored his voters. So in this lawsuit, the DOJ argues SB1 in Texas further and impermissibly restricts the core right to meaningful assistance in the voting booth, prohibiting assisters from answering voters' questions, responding to requests to clarify ballot translations, and confirming that voters with visual impairments have marked a ballot as intended will curtail fundamental voting rights without advancing any legitimate state interest. Quote, SB1 will disenfranchise some eligible male voters based on paperwork errors or omissions immaterial to their qualifications to vote. Quote, conditioning the right to cast a mail ballot on a voter's ability to recall and recite the identification number provided on an application for voter registration months or years before will curtail fundamental voting rights without advancing any legitimate state interest. That's the standard, Popak. Is there legitimate state interests? Yeah. We talked about the balancing test that's applied in these cases by federal courts over what constitutes a legitimate state interest. And while you have these legal balancing tests where you apply various factors, as we know, depending on what judge you draw, um, they're going to apply factors that lead in favor of one perspective or the other. Usually these these voting legislation as such a hot button issue. I just think um, it's going to be a case that goes ultimately to the Supreme Court. You're going to have the I don't like to call them conservative, but very right wing Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, who's likely going to allow the law to stand. That's where it's going to be headed. Um, and then it becomes an issue ultimately if the here, Supreme Court decides here, to grant. Service. Here's the here's the good and the bad about this filing. The good is to answer the question, what is Merrick Garland doing these days is he's continuing to have his his Justice Department file suits in states to support especially on the civil rights side. So our followers and listeners have to be satisfied or should be satisfied with the Justice Department, with Vanita Gupta, with, with um, the Civil Rights Division of all the filings that they're doing. The entire Justice Department can't just be about prosecuting Trump, okay? They gotta do other things as well. So I like the filing, but here I wanna manage expectations. The Voting Rights Act as we know it has been gutted since it was passed during the Johnson administration by the conservative right-wing Supreme Courts, including in a recent decision that went really against the Voting Rights Act and in favor of Arizona voter suppression laws by the current Supreme Court on a six to three basis, where they found just recently, just less than a year ago, that Arizona's 
what they call ballot harvesting provisions. And Arizona's, uh, uh, if you vote in the wrong precinct, it doesn't, it, it doesn't count uh, aspects, do not violate clause two or section two of the Voting Rights Act. That's the current composition of the US Supreme Court. They bend over backwards to find that voting suppression provisions pass muster under the Voting Rights Act. So where we are flying into those headwinds with this case as to whether the specific restrictions against voter assistance in the the polling area and other obstacles to mail-in voting are disproportionately discriminatory against people of race, color, or certain protected language uh, uh, participants. And so I'm glad he filed it, but I want everybody ready that there's a buzzsaw of the current Supreme Court that this case is going to fly into uh, because as of yet, they haven't seen a voter suppression law that they haven't liked. Popak, great analysis there and great analysis throughout this jam-packed edition of Legal AF. Popak, I see you checking your notes. Popak wants to cover more categories. He's like, Any, anything else I got? We hit 10 categories on Legal AF today. Not bad. I mean, Popak, that was one of the most impressive Legal AFs that we've done to date, but the time goes by so quickly when we're breaking down the law and we get to have fun spending this time together. I want to give a special thanks to our sponsors, Adam and Eve and Policy Genius. Remember, you can go to adamandeve.com slash legal AF. You can go to policygenius.com legal AF. Make sure to support our sponsors. It allows Popakian and Mycelesian to spend this time with you each and every weekend. Again, feel free if you have a case. Yes, it can even be a personal injury case. Popak and I will take a look at it. You, your friend, a colleague, will take a look at it. Ben at MidasTouch.com is how you reach out to me. And Popak's email was mpopak at zplaw.com. Go to the Midas Touch merch store by going to MidasTouch.com. Click on the link that says merchandise. Go and get your thank you Brandon shirt, which are it's going to sell out soon. So make sure you get your thank you Brandon T-shirt. We have long sleeve shirts. We've got the hoodies. We've got mugs. I got all of my thank you Brandon gear and the Midas Touch merch store is great in general. I mean, it has some high quality stuff. It's all union made, all made in America, um, which was an incredibly important. You see, did you did you see one of our. One of our Twitter followers posted what I've now referred to as the legal AF home uniform. I know we need to wear it. They got the Midas Touch sweats, the legal AF shirt, the hat, the whole nine yards. And also make sure to check out the movie, The Supporters. You can go to thesupportersmovie.com. It's been watched over 300,000 downloads already in the first 48 hours. A movie we made with The Good Liars. It was created and starred in by the Good Liars, uh, Jason and Devram, who are hilarious. Uh, The movie's gotten incredible reviews. Um, And feel free to support the supporters by going to the supportersmovie.com. You could chip in. We made the movie available for free. But if you like it, feel free to contribute to the filmmakers so they can try to make back the costs of 
filming. And other than that, I just want to say thank you for tuning in to this edition of Legal AF. If it's Saturday, it is Legal AF. If it is Sunday, it is Legal AF Live. If it is the weekend, you are stuck with Ben Micellis and Michael Popak. Popak, final words. I have none. In fact, we we have to put an end to this because I just have to end my day here. (laughs) That's those are very profound last words. Quote, we need to put an end to this because I need to end my day. So Popokian, so philosophical. We'll leave it with that. Ben Micellis, Michael Popak signing off. We'll see you next time. Shout out to the Midas Mighty.